0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Abram Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles, the projectionist, has Michael. Hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Holokowski, and we're talking furry things tonight furry animal things, maybe not alive, but <laughs> we want to talk a little bit about what occurred post World War II. Um, there seemed to have been this great fascination with films that were centered on an, an animal as its star uh, with somehow some reason why the animal had some either some special powers or some special uh, aspects about that. And the interaction between humans and animals, there were so many films, you know, we we talked about the Francis, the talking mule films uh, that uh, with Donald O'Connor Um And these films, I think, are very different uh, than the way dogs and horses were used uh, in films of the 1930s and 40s. Uh, National Velvet uh, that we've mentioned and uh, the Thin Man films that had Asta. Uh, The dogs and the dogs obviously was in a certain sense trained well, a comic relief, um, but never really, you know, uh, again, Lassie, yes. Uh, But there was in Lassie, I, I do believe, you know, Roddy McDowell and Liz Taylor and others. Um, they were able to make use of the expressions the dogs have, the training, of course, that the uh, all, that all those uh, collies had. But the idea of just let's throw everything at them, let's throw as much shtick as we can, let's put animals in there. Uh, you've uh, mentioned 1951's; uh, these type of films with an animal protagonist, uh, a, a, me- a boy who turns into a dog. Um, a cat that has seven lives uh animals that journey cross country uh this seems to have been what disney with their ability uh to again fool you into actually believing that these animals are acting according to script um and and the actors that were associated with these animals were really not that important um, Dean Jones, of course, in uh, That Darn Cat, uh, was quite a minor figure. He ended up, of course, being in a whole number of Disney films, and but he wasn't a, a, a very well-known commodity. I think what Disney was able to do was finally figure out how to get these dogs and cats and other animals to be trained in a way and the type of shtick that was used in terms of the camera work to actually see them as the heroes of the adventure, whether they were intelligent animals, talking animals, um, psychic animals, um, they had it pretty much wrapped up well. Now, were those films really great? But they were great for kids. And when I was growing up, we couldn't wait for Disney's next um, live-action film. Uh, Disney, of course, as you know, Yitzhak was built on cartoons it's built on animation but walt and his brothers they were all and his brother roy they understood that they needed to be expand they needed to become a major studio and they needed to use to get into live action and eventually of course they were pioneers in the live action television uh, adventure series like zorro and others so uh, disney uh uh when they when they were in live action uh off times had animals at the center of their stories and i think they also didn't need uh to have the greatest uh star talent around them it's true disney did make some films and uh i believe um 20 leagues under the sea was a disney film i'm pretty sure um and uh yes, uh, yes it was yeah. right and that really had major star power uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea had a Kirk Douglas, mm-hmm. uh, uh, right? I think Kirk yes. Douglas. I think Kirk Douglas was in it along with James Mason. Yeah. So yeah, so uh, uh, but really, their 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 fuzzy films really didn't need it. I th- and 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 then they almost really. I think everybody abdicated that type of family film to Disney. Um, it was interesting when you asked me about Benji the other day, uh, that the Benji series was actually rejected by all the studios. And this Joe Camp ended up in 1974 with the dog, as I did a little bit of research, one of my favorite dogs from Petticoat Junction. Um, And you might remember that dog uh, that stole every scene he was in. I think his name was Higgins. (laughs) And Higgins, at the age of 15, uh, starred in Benji. And Higgins' children, his progeny, uh, were the ones who continued, uh, I think, I had five or six films of Benji. And then they they rebooted it. And Benji, of course, was a worldwide phenomenon. It was a film that I, I didn't, it, it was past my prime. Mark, did you, uh, when you were a kid, did your, your your parents take you to see any of the Benji films? Yep.
1: We saw the Benji movies and the sequels that ensued. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and and you and i until and I, last night i thought disney was behind it but really not they were really a fellow by the name of joe camp uh really produced them all and uh, i think even the reboots they owe him uh all the residuals and all the the monies for that because he created this benji franchise um and i guess was it benji's expressions did you did you think the human actors made a difference to you it was all about the dog when you used to go
1: it was mostly about the dogs. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And uh, and, and so it's interesting that the, there was a number of films, and so we're going to start talking about, it, that was made post-World War II, right? In the very beginning, 1950, 51, where they tried other studios who didn't have what eventually became the expertise of working with animals, training them, making you believe, you know, the, that they were actually doing what the script was calling for. And they, these films are, are fun to watch, but are really pretty much strikeouts. The two that I'm talking about in particular have very, almost. You, you think that somebody had their ear uh, to the writing to the writer's room in the other studio. One film is called um, Rhubarb, and the other film is called Never. You ne- never can tell, or you never can tell. Both films have the same premise that a start with the sim- same premise that an eccentric millionaire has left their complete estate to a pet. In you never can tell it's a German shepherd and in rhubarb, it's a cat. Now what's, what are the chances they're made in the same year, 1951, but then the films differ tremendously. Um, I'll start with x X uh, has, is the, uh, is the recipient of these millions of dollars uh, by by the way there's there's still lawsuits abounding today about the personhood as you know of animals <laughs> and whether they can be the recipients and therefore the owners of things or can they really be the money be bequeathed to them but anyway the point though is that both of these animals are these rich animals in you never can tell rex the german shepherd um is is under the guardianship of uh, an attractive girl. Um, Peggy Dow, I think, is the name of the girl, the actress that plays her. She didn't play in too many films. Uh, And the plethora of letters that come in to try to insinuate themselves in her life, she rejects them. But there's one letter and one fellow who somehow is able to get through the door because he actually is telling the truth. He was Rex's a, a sort of uh trainer or the his soldier that he was attached to in the recently uh past world war 2 and he has pictures to prove it now uh, a romance starts to ensue in and, and 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 Rex's guardian and the fellow seems to be on the up and up but you know something is a foul because uh, he he takes a trip suddenly The next thing you know, the dog is poisoned. Uh, And what happened? Uh, His guardian is suspected immediately of of, of killing the dog, and this way all the millions will revert to her. At this point, the film does something which was the best they could do. They give us a view of animal heaven. and In animal heaven, a great lion is sort of like the godlike figure who uh, gets approached by Rex's neshama. And again, the the cinematography that's used to sort of indicate that is basically negatives. They basically, what they do is they basically film the animals in negative. So you realize it is a dog that's being, uh, that somehow moves forward and the dog can now speak. And the dog speaks and says, that he wants to go back and catch his murderer because he knows who the murderer is. The murderer, of course, is this George fellow who has insinuated himself and plans, of course, to marry the guardian and this way get all the money. Uh, maybe kill her too. Um, so he's granted oh, uh, the, the wish till the full moon he's, or, or the next day or two. He's given the ability to reincarnate himself <laughs> into a human being. And the dog, but he needs help. So a southern racehorse that had died 60 years ago uh, also goes with him. And that racehorse is reincarnated into his attractive assistant, uh, complete with a faux southern accent. And they, in their reincarnation, immediately become set up as detectives. Rex Shepard, detective, played by Dick Powell. Now, Dick Powell was a, a singer in the 1930s who later changed. He was in a number of the films that were, I think he was in the first Marlowe film, um, playing this hard-boiled guy. So this sort of like played on his new hard-boiled uh, reputation. But of course, he's still a dog. In other words, he's a dog in a, in a, with a human's body. Um, and he has a couple of days to prove that George has committed the murder. Of course some, a lot of hijinks ensues because he still likes raw meat he still finds himself attracted to balls that he wants to just run after turns out of course that the the, the secret of the film is is that if they don't go back within a day or two they are stuck in their human forms and as the film progresses, the film uh, makes sort of indicates that there's many of these animals among us, that there's many of these human beings that are strange and idiosyncratic that are really actually uh, animals that have become reincarnated for some sort of purpose and have decided to stay in their human guise. Now, the the, the, the film, it's a mishmash. And you can see that despite the talent uh, that went into it, it was... Um, it was, I think it was the only major feature that was directed by Lou Breslau, who is Yitzchok, as I saw to Yitzchok off pod, was the director of a number of stooge shorts, and it was a writer. Um, and and this is really an example of of Hollywood trying. The problem is, of course, is that there's too little dog. <laughs> in other words, it's supposed to be a dog film. It's supposed to be an animal film. Of course, he meets up with his, his, uh, his, his boxer friend that was with him in the army. But you know, he ends up freeing a bunch of dogs from a pound. But again, the the mixture of human and animal just, just doesn't work. Uh, another the film Rhubarb, which is a little bit more well known, is, is another film, uh, directed by uh, uh Arthur Lubin, another Jewish fellow, just like uh Lou Breslau. And in this film, it starred one of a major Hollywood actor, a Hollywood actor that had actually uh, nabbed the Academy Award for. The Lost Weekend, Ray Land, <laughs> and, and, and Ray Moland, and we've talked to Yitzchakow, at the end of his uh, career was taking everything. But here in 1951, uh, he played uh, uh, guardian to this alley cat called Rhubarb. Now, the, the film starts with Rhubarb. Uh, it's, a, it's a paramount film. And obviously, MGM is the big competition. And they want to say they actually have Rhubarb do the MGM lion's roar. To show you that there's a new animal in town, not Leo from MGM, but actually rhubarb. And and although the name rhubarb is probably said hundreds of times in the film, and rhubarb, of course, was an old slang for uh, uh, like a like a like a uh, a knockdown drag out fight between people, like a rhubarb has occurred. It isn't it isn't the ve- it isn't the, the vegetation. So the again, the conceit is the the cat ends up being uh the recipient of uh, a millionaire's money but instead of the cat dying the cat is is they try to kill the cat because the millionaire cuts out his his greedy daughter from the will and the, the cat is not only the owner of all the money he's also the owner of a baseball team so here again hollywood was trying to cre- to do another baseball movie baseball then was the american pastime um, it was the same year as angels in the outfield and many other sort of baseball theme movies to come. Let's throw animals in, let's throw a baseball team in and the, the, and, and, and these lovable losers, just like in uh, angels in the outfield, they become winners somehow. Oh, let's not explain how by, by Ray Milan's hop that they need to uh, feel rhubarb is lucky Um, by rhubarb, uh, when they send some, uh, when they send some refund checks to people who happen to have petted rhubarb, that spreads a rumor in the locker room. Which, by the way, if you look very closely, you'll see Leonard Nimoy is in there as one of the baseball players. He doesn't doesn't say a word, but you can see Leonard Nimoy standing there. I guess he has his eyebrow arched and thinking how illogical the whole thing is. But basically, what happens is is that if you pet rhubarb. Somehow that gives you luck, and then this last place Brooklyn Dodgers—they're called the Brooklyn Loons—they um, can somehow be. They come from the last place team uh, to the best play to the to the. They win the pennant, and they're ready to play. Of course, the Yankees in the World Series, and uh, the Yankees were always the Yankees. Somehow, didn't have to be turned into anybody else. The Yanks were always the Yanks, uh, and again, it becomes a Subway Series with Brooklyn versus Manhattan. A lot of cute things go on. But the problem, Mark and and, and Yitzchok, is the cat. A cat, unlike a dog, the, I mean, Lassie could just stand there uh, looking at you, and you fall in love. Benji didn't really have to. Benji learned a lot of tricks, but a lot of it is the, the 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 eyes, the expression that dogs have. Cats, as you know, are, um, I guess, what's the right word for it? They are uh, inscrutable. Uh, they do their own thing. You you and and to get them, they needed 14 cats to be able to do even the little bit of tricks that rhubarb was supposed to do. One of the things rhubarb was supposed to be able to do was every dog was afraid of him. And you and you you just couldn't believe it watching it today. Because basically what they do is they just rewind the camera. The dogs run. Oh, here's the dogs running backwards or something like that, or the dogs running away. And you you really unfortunately cannot really buy into it as much as the flights of fancy of the story the intricate plots but all of those were probably just as good as anything that was in the 60s or 70s maybe even better the problem was the quality of uh, the technical quality whether it was cgi or animatronics or uh, uh, it, it, it just couldn't make it happen so i really think this these films when you see them are interesting curiosities of attempts of something that later became standard kid fare. Mark, when I was growing up in the 60s, you in the 70s, these were the films that our parents wanted us to go see, were these films that were family-oriented, that had animals at at their center. And it's interesting that sort of Hollywood knew what they were trying to do, but just couldn't get it done. Another interesting little note about rhubarb is during and this I know was a, a dig intentionally, during the World Series, um Ray Milan's fiance is watching it on television, and she she can't be uh at the game or near rhubarb because she's allergic. And that plays a role in the film that her allergies to rhubarb means that she's going to be able to discover where rhubarb is. Jan Sterling, who happens to be Paul Douglas's wife at the time, um plays uh, th- that character, and her allergies become a key aspect of the film. Um, she's watching on TV, and the television screen is constantly going up and down, like early television sets did. In fact, even during the crucial um, parts of the game where Rhubarb is re- returns at the, the very last inning and uh, and they're able to somehow score runs... They tell you that on television, we <laughs> on television. I'm sorry, we weren't able to show you that because we had to be in commercial again. Hollywood trying to tell you, don't stay home and watch TV. Your screens are not going, it's going to be black and white. Well, the movie's black and white too, but the screens are not going to be stable and commercials are going to interrupt all the best stuff and you're going to miss things, which again was Hollywood's way of taking its digs at television, which it did continuously throughout the fifties, trying to get people to leave their homes and come there. So I, I think both of these films are cute that disney and 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 joe camp and others have basically spoiled these films for our kids none of these kids will buy into it and it's 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 a shame because some of these stories are cute and do have some sort of positive message so again it's sort of like a blip but a blip worth exploring Yitzchak, before we get to mark's film i know you wanted to add a third film to this league of infamy and what was that yeah
2: i mean i'm sitting here with my pet which is a lizard and i i uh i i can commiserate with allergies that's why i, I pick a, a non-allergenic cut. yes and, uh, actually these two films which i was not really that aware of it made me think of from the same time a movie called the great rupert from 1950 uh starring uh jimmy Durante, and also terry moore who i once met at monster bash a couple of years ago and uh, she's a very nice person and it's uh Produced by George Powell who made a lot of a lot of uh, the puppet tunes the before that and after that a lot of uh, science fiction movies like, In-
0: including the the time machine
2: yeah the time machine the War of the Worlds the, both of those based on HG uh, wells uh, and the uh, destination moon and others so it's uh it's it's a, a it's a strange little movie also like you said those movies don't really hold up this one you know george powell did use the uh, stop motion effects that he used in his previous short subjects the puppet tunes some of them he actually worked with ray harryhausen to make but then he he kind of i think harryhausen was maybe a little too good for him that was really that's where harryhausen got his start and i actually Mentioning Harryhausen, of course, mentioned Terry Moore was in uh, Harryhausen's first feature that he did together with Willis O'Brien, which was Mighty Joe Young, which, of course, had the stop motion in there. It was uh, just the year before that, 1949, with a totally stop motion gorilla, um, but it was meant to be just a normal gorilla, maybe a little bit bigger than normal, but not, uh, not, not like King Kong, much more a different type of a character And here. So I guess uh, uh, Terry Moore, she had a lot of work with stop-motion animals here. It was a squirrel who kind of saved the day with a uh, a poor family.
0: Um, it's really it, a Christmas movie, though, really. I mean, yeah. the, right, the, the movie really milks Christmas quite a bit, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. There was actually recently uh, Sven Tooney, which is on after Sven Gulli, They yeah. used that as their Christmas uh, special. That was their...
0: Was the great Rupert?
2: <laughs> yeah. That's kind of where, where we're reminded of. I, I, I'm not so impressed by this movie, even though it has a lot of things that I would enjoy. I like, I like, you know, movies in black and white from the 50s. I, I, I like Terry Moore. I like George Powell. I, I
0: Jimmy Durrani though is an acquired taste. I think you, you have, know, have to
2: admit. Andy, I have a hard time <laughs> really enjoying. You know, like I, I think of. So the pretty bad movies he made together with Buster Keaton for MGM, uh, and when the talkie era started, that were right. just right.
0: Right, but those were really more horrible. Not because of Durante, it was because of the 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 incomprehensible pairing of these two. Yeah. Uh, it was it was sort of like we can't. You know, Buster is so talented; he he can do so much. We can't just let him be on the wayside. Let's let's connect him with this, you know, this uh, motor mouth, you know, fellow, this Jimmy Durante. But it, it didn't make any sense, and therefore the films were grotesque. But you know, Durante was definitely had chiseled out. A unique about bob hope a couple of weeks ago you could make a case that duranty sort of was sort of like bob hope like in terms of his you know he kept himself you know in the public uh, uh public high spotlight he did an, a lot of television work with the lennon sisters uh and other things so you know and and, and because of how unique he was because uh, all the people watching tv's parents and grandparents loved the guy he was able to really have a career you know, quite late into his, you know, into his, uh you know, into his uh, almost, I guess, into his eighties. I think he was still uh yeah, showing up on.
2: Mad, mad, mad world. And... Right.
0: Yeah. There he has sort of a cameo, but uh yeah, yeah he's, he's sort of the, uh, the, he was the one who, he's the spark up... who starts. The... Yeah. He's the spark that starts everything. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. He has a great death scene there. That's right great. in the right in the beginning of the film look you know duranti is definitely an acquired taste but and duranti does like
2: him but i just can't i can't get into him that the
0: question there. though with Yitzhak, just based on i mean did you think duranti's interactions with this animated puppet squirrel whatever it was did you buy into it did you believe there's a relationship between human and animal again a, a dog really, no, yeah. no. <laughs> look like we said dogs Unfortunately, have it all over any other animal uh, because of their unique relationship to human beings, which could be captured even in a silent film. I think yeah. all these attempts to you know, to throw other except horses were a little bit different, mules. But I think you know,
2: and, and you, apes. You know, and, yes, these right. I, I have
0: to. I have to say, although you know, we our cutoff is forty years. I do want to say another film that wasn't Disney, wasn't Joe Camp, which I think Mark, maybe you you'll chime in on this. I think might be really the best of these human animal stories is Babe. Cool. I, I really, I, again, I know it's a lot of sentimental um, stuff, but I don't know. I
1: I, I, I agree.
0: I That's, enjoyed it.
1: you Mar- have never seen Babe. Oh, you, and you, your kids saw it, I'm sure. No, my kids are too young for Babe.
0: Okay, now, first of all, you know, Babe, again, it's, it's really past our cutoff, but George Miller, who did all the... Um, uh the you know the mel Gibson um Mad Max films and a bunch of other stuff. Um uh, oh, no, film, I like George a film that is very hard to watch, excruciating hard to watch, but is is and some uplifting is Lorenzo's oil.
1: No, I didn't realize that George Miller Yeah, L- George
0: Miller George Miller was the director of uh Lorenzo's oil as well. And um, you know, so but you know like I would say again, uh, I think in Babe, it all comes together. I think the the main thing I think you have to understand in these animal films, and 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 they understood this in the original Lassie films as well. You know, today we look back at, at Elizabeth Taylor and Roddy McDowell as major stars, but they were just starting then. You you don't need to get a super um, actor in the role. It's meant to be the, the, the a showcase of the animal, uh, you know.
1: Happy feet is what I'm referring to.
0: Yes, which is with penguins, right? Penguins. That's, mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. So, so I think that you know, you to get that balance right, uh, you know. In other words, a, a, even a star like Durante really can't share the spotlight. You know, Ray land I mean, you're talking about Oscar-winning uh, hams or Oscar-winning stars. You're talking about hams who who chew up the scenery. These films need like a June Lockhart, you know, and Lassie. They need someone who, who you can relate to, who, who, who puts feeling into their line readings, but lets the animals really do their stuff. Babe is a little bit different because the animals talk. Um, but I think uh, James Cromwell... Uh, who is who plays uh, Babe's uh, handler, the one who has lost his sheepdog and Babe saves him. You know, Yitzhak, back me up on this. What does he say? You did. Just being able to say, that'll do, pig. I know, it just brings tears to my eyes. That'll do, pig. <laughs> and of course, it uses Camille Saint-Saëns' um, uh, organ, uh, symphony, as its uh, as its major theme throughout. So Mark, any film that has the organ symphony running through it, uh, and, and it's used w- with such great effect. I mean, it's it's like the weirdest organ music in the middle of this great symphony, but it, it works perfect in Babe. And again, it, it, I, I didn't, the, the remakes, Babe in the City, et cetera, Babe's Christmas. Th- that was a film that there's enough of the real thing. The animatronics are there. It's sort of like we talked last week, Mark. When we talked about Christopher Reeve and, and Superman, it ta- it takes a long time for these good ideas to finally matriculate and catch, uh, and the technology and the know how to catch up with them that they can actually now be presented in a way that, oh, that's a good movie. Oh, that and that could be a movie. Hilarious. Uh, well, before, yeah. Let's t- now let's. I think that's it's a, a good segue. segue a great segue on. for your film. Go ahead.
1: Yes, no. It's an excellent segue to 2001: A Space Odyssey, of course, because in 1968, special effects for outer space. This is pre, uh, this is pre George Lucas and Star Wars, right? A good, you know, a good almost n- ten years. years, nine years, ten years, almost ten years, right? 68 is when a Space Odyssey comes out, and Star Wars, of course, is 77 uh but it's mesmerizing to watch just visually it's it's it remains i think one of the most striking films. I think it's deadly dull <laughs> from a point of view of 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 dialogue and 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 story but you're so captured you're so ensnared by by the visuals and and by the i wouldn't say minimalist special effects because they're they're quite elaborate for for their day um but it's the other elements of the story that that i think are more questionable as as a as an artifact of of greatness i think the the way the film looks um certainly from the space portion of the film not the prologue necessarily although you know, if you don't <laughs> mind, people dressed up as as gorillas, and you know, <laughs> Yitzchok said. Before, when I
0: told Yitzchok you were going to be uh, highlighting this film, he said that was the only part he liked of the film.
1: Yeah, yeah. Some people, some people actually do only like the prologue, and 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 don't don't like much when when things get into space. Um, I mean, the prologue is thought provoking from you know an intellectual or cultural point of view, and what what is this monolith? does this suggest you know, as it surely does some extraterrestrial life is it man at a more advanced stage of evolution himself um
0: it seems it seems to appear like when it appears in that prologue it appears at the moment that according to you know arthur c Clarke and, and Kubrick, uh the ape-like creatures are about to make the turn to, to be use more tools human. To use tools and be be more human-like. Yes, Yes. and of course, and and the
1: obelisk, the the monolith, is maybe a kind of catalyst for this, and it's also the fact that it was buried in the moon in that crater near Tycho. um, That also is a register inflection point to this new stage of space travel and the ability to to go to Jupiter, and and of course eventually you know go through the space gate and and meet you know these (laughs) higher life forms yes
0: right so so it's almost it's a it's a big question i think people have mark did the is the monolith there to say oh i've got to register because man is now ready to make that next jump or is the monolith somehow the godlike um engine that pushes humanity towards its next Role and I think it's really it's I I guess Kubrick leaves it so uh, elliptic and so
1: it's a very elliptical movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's the theme Uh, of this movie. But but I
0: think he he wanted it. I think he wanted it to the dialogue to be boring because I think to me and and you're probably getting to this, but to me and I remember I saw this film on its re-release. I when the film came out in '68, I did not see the film but I read the Mad Magazine parody of it okay. a couple of months later. And it was called in the parody, A Space Idiocy instead yeah. of A Space Odyssey. And yeah. and and, it, and I said, I, I can't see this, especially since its running time was unlike your typical two hour film. I think its running time is two hours and 50 minutes. Is that so? Or two
1: hours like and 53 minutes. I yes.
0: Okay. I want everyone to say I said this without any computer <laughs> looking at yes it's about i didn't two look hour- at it
1: i looked at it the other day <laughs>
0: yes okay but two hours and 50 minutes so now in 72 the film was re-released right i went to see it as a 12 year old right and and of course my dad a shalom had to come pick me up three and a half hours later after he dropped me off and i have to tell you that the last 20 minutes were some of the strangest of my twelve-year-old mind's yeah. experiences. I
1: mean, it's it's almost psychedelic. The yes, and,
0: and 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 I have to tell you, it, it's still striking to me. Of course, the 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 it's almost seven minutes. I think of of sort of like shaking and moving of the camera, and Wait. and and then uh, afterwards, he you you see sort of an old man in some sort of uh, uh, right uh, in some sort yes. of futuristic spot. Yep. And 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 of course i mean it was it
1: was politely Pierre Dulé who, yes. you know who plays david Bowman um i think was was made to look like this elderly, almost you know alien creature
0: yeah, yeah, w- yes, and it's and, like
1: uh, different stages of his life, and he's going to return to earth perhaps with his higher form of consciousness being accessed now and mm-hmm. achieving you know a, a, another layer or another stage of evolution of evolutionary advancement. But it's not clear. I mean this I'm this is what I'm I'm saying is is just sort of right. speculation but, but, and you know born of some of the things but, I've because, read.
0: But but I was a pretty precocious, well read 12 year old. Who was this film for? I mean it's query was not for kids. No. This was not for t- right now Kubrick. I mean a kid serious. can look
1: at it and a kid could be in awe of the of the movements of, of these spaceships and the kind of life outside of the earth, um, and be struck by the visuals and the music, you know, the, the Ricard Strauss, uh, Spake Zarathustra, Zarathustra. Yeah. Alster, yes, yes. Um, so it, it's a, a child, a younger person can appreciate some elements of it, but will be left confused. At best, (laughs) by by the actual film and the plot, even.
0: And I, 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 one thing I discovered on my rewatching the film that I think Kubrick, of course, wanted even Care Doulet, who had done really great work in the early sixties in Mark and Lisa and some other films that they some independent films that he made, he wanted the dialogue to be stilted because I think he was making a point that our 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 advancements in scientifically had not really been aligned with the advancements in our heart and spirit that it was it was like we were taking so much of the uh, re- the technological marvels that the age had ushered in with a nonchalance and a boredom um it, it, there was the human spirit, the excitement of adventure. It wasn't there. Yeah, it, I mean, it, you it,
1: could it, see that very clearly in the opening scenes in space, where they're taking that Pan Am, you know, flight to the spaceship to the mm-hmm. to the space station, and then that's going to get them to the moon, where nobody's. Can, it's it's so boring. It, it, like yes. it's boring. It's limited. There are hardly any people actually traveling. If you notice, mm-hmm. it's like the one passenger on this on this shuttle. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's all, you know, very nonchalant, very boring, boring. Right. Um,
0: which I think is, which is itself a comment. There's something wrong with humanity. Uh, yeah. we we And I think that's, to me, part of the reason why the monolith appears. It doesn't yeah. just appear because, Mark, oh, you've made it to the moon. Now I've got to show up because it's also there because it needs to, that spark that needs to be inserted into human beings, the spark of of, of, of greatness,
1: creativity, uh, yes. of, of greatness, of courage, something,
0: right, which is missing, it's
1: almost like the, the gorillas in the prologue have more that sense of discovery when, when, when that hominid finally knows what to do with this bone and, and mm-hmm. begins to use the bone in battle, right. there's a sense of freshness, a sense of, and of course, it's very animalistic, so it's very primitive, but there's that vitality that these beasts are showing these beasts that are g- going to become human that are, that are displaying their, they're more in touch with their nature or with their, you know, with, with their identities as, as pulsating, you know, vital animals.
0: You know, and, and, and I would I say just the, the cherry on top on that icing is probably, again, one of Kubrick's best cinematography tricks, which is, the bone that gets thrown up right, in ocean, the spaceship becomes the spaceship that yeah. is such a that is such a wonderful hop that i, I it's almost never been equaled really that type
1: no of... it's a very striking moment it's that 2 shot scene with with the bone flying up and becoming kind of like ebbing into or or morphing into the space shuttle
0: because because it's really again that that's really the power it's an extension
1: of it's an extension of that same impulse.
0: Right. So it, it, that's really that's that is almost the, the most perfect thing about the film. I think the other thing which has to be commented on before you get even deeper is the fact that Hal is really more of a character than
1: than the human. The, and he's programmed to get one passenger to Jupiter. And I think the the question there must be some limitation on the on the science or on the on the life support system uh-huh, that see. would allow you know multiple passengers to arrive at at the Oh so I said so how
0: has the to how has how yeah. how yeah. is the one with this choice he
1: well, he has to make sure the mission is the mission is done, is done. yes
0: uh, see, I didn't get that
1: I I don't think how I don't think how is is autonomously acting to kill you know bowman and and uh Poole, i think and the other three that are in the hibernetics you know in the sleep i think it's that he needs to fulfill the mission and the mission for some reason only allows you know the either nobody to survive or the one person to survive I, i'm it's mm-hmm. not there's no there's no evidence that 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 he is autonomously uh-huh, taking that decision, at least so, none that I could see.
0: Uh, so it's not some sort of de- it's not some sort of AI getting conscious because I always thought Hal's death, you know, where he starts devolving and sure, he starts very
1: poignant. In its yes, own
0: yes, because it's it's almost much the- much
1: more poignant than the death of Pool or the death of the other you know the hibernet the ones that are in hibernetic sleep. Right,
0: because Pool dies.
1: Those in- characters are totally uninteresting.
0: Yeah, and 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 Kubrick does something great by killing them in the in the total vacuum of space. Yeah, yeah, where there is no sound. Right? right,
1: there's no sound. There's nothing.
0: No music. No, event, no really. sound. There's, yeah. there's no
1: event. There's no quality to, to kind of um, enrich that or or deepen or or complexify yes. that occurrence. It's right, just and, matter of fact
0: and and when hal dies of course he evolves almost almost like um cliff robertson and flowers for algernon where you know he loses his higher level of intelligences um and when he (laughs) the first time i ever heard champagne illinois was hal hal was built there and of course